Enrollment is open for Thomas's upcoming six-session live online course, Navigating the Levels of Trauma Healing. Explore how to work with the impacts of collective crises and challenges and learn tools to manage anxiety, overwhelm, and nervous system dysregulation during times of accelerated change and disruption. In this all-new curriculum, Thomas and expert guest speakers will engage in ecosystemic practices to collectively explore our resilience, agency, and capacity to stay present and find deeper meaning. Click the link in our show notes to learn more and enroll. Or go to www.navigatingthelevelsoftrauma.com. Welcome to Point of Relation with Thomas Hubel, a podcast that illuminates the path to collective healing at the intersection of science and mysticism. In his conversations with visionaries, innovators, artists, and healers, Thomas invites guests into a relational experience that allows inspiration and innovation to emerge. This is The Point of Relation. The following interview was recorded during a previous Collective Trauma Summit, an online gathering convened annually by Thomas Hubel to share ideas and inspire action for healing, individual, ancestral, and collective trauma. Visit CollectiveTraumaSummit.com to listen to featured talks from our most recent summit and sign up to be the first to know when the next summit is announced. Alanis Morissette is a widely influential singer-songwriter with 14 Canadian Juno Awards, 7 Grammys, and over 75 million albums sold. She's known for her debut, Jagged Little Pill, and has released 9 more acclaimed albums. Beyond music and acting, she's committed to spiritual and psychological well-being, supporting causes like recovery and female empowerment. In 2016, she launched a podcast where she shares her insights. Her multifaceted career highlights her impact across multiple platforms and subjects. Hello and welcome to the Collective Trauma Summit. My name is Thomas Hubel and I have the big honor, pleasure and curiosity to be sitting with you here, Elenis Morissette. Elenis, welcome to our, our summit here. Thank you, Thomas. It's an honor to be invited. It's an honor to be here with you. and. I think you, there are many things that I'm interested in. I mean, of course, most probably I know more about your life than you about mine, but we, uh, there are so many things that I, what I know and how I see you moving in the world that I'm interested in. So the first is like, there's music, there's art, and then there's healing, trauma, self-development, spirituality. And I think you're into both very strongly. How come? Maybe you can, like, it's lovely to see how we become what we become. So what, what put you on your path and, and how did life invite you to what you're doing today? That's a great question. And I have some, some guesses. Yeah, the, that's the best I can call them, our guesses as to why I'm, my proclivities are what they are. Um, I think for me, the healing arts, you know, for me, that's the whole sort of broad stroke umbrella of, of what I fall under. Um, I think the temperament that I am highly sensitive and I'm an empath in a multitudinous ways. So I think that that uh, 
what comes along with that is a conscientiousness and a servicefulness. And um, it's sort of an orientation, basically, wherever I show up, musically, artistically, psychotherapeutically, trauma recoverily. Um, it's all with an idea of wanting to show up to serve through the senses, through art, through body, through movement, through uh, you know, surrendering to flow and evidencing what it might look like for people on stage. One of the most resonant moments for me is being on stage and really kind of tapping into that mirror neuron thing where my movement, my expression of any given emotion is a green light at least or, or an invitation at best for people to experience that in their own body and their own personalized version of it. So really, I think being in the public eye for me with the expressions that I that I do, these self-expressions, in so many ways, it's indulgent for me, but at the same time, it's an invitation for people as well. So I don't know if that answers your question, but might touch on it. Yeah, it might. It, of course, it touches on it. Tell me a little bit more about how you experience um, highly sensitive empath. How how is life as an empath? I think many people that might be listening here can resonate maybe because they might have a similar inclination. But let, tell me a little bit, how is that? And how does that work with being so much in the public eye? I mean, you're so exposed. Many people that are so sensitive, they try to kind of find their own safe corner. And maybe you can speak a bit to them. Yeah, I mean, there's there. Basically, I see it as the the large part of the bell shape is extroversion, masculinity. We still live in a patriarchal context, so you know, basically, the messaging to those of us who are on the small part of the bell shape curve, those of us who are sensitive, empathic, introverted, uh, certain numbers on the enneagram. You know, it's like basically the messaging that I got and and was unconscious and sort of drove a lot of my choices through life was how can I pretend to be extroverted? You know, mm. how can I function mm. well in a world that uh, seems almost foreign to me? You know, and I used to watch people who had a, dip, a temperament different than mine and wish that I could be like that at first. Now I see um, being an empath and, and being highly sensitive as a, as a sweet superpower, you know, mm. um, but I do love the big part of the bell-shaped curve. I love the mainstream. So I'm sort of besotted with it. So I'll be inside of it. And I'm just, I have to be responsible for this body and the speed with which the current of, of the transmission of life, you know, courses through me. I think ultimately we all have to be responsible for the, the speed with which that current moves through us. So that might look like after a show or a big event where there's a lot of stimulation that there's pin drop silence for me that I can restore. So mm. that's really my responsibility to make sure that whatever lifestyle I've chosen is sustainable. And I've had chapters that are not sustainable. And parenthood is an interesting chapter where there's no <laughs> hours to myself is, is not really an option. Um, so for me, the more I got to know, I think knowledge has been great power for me. Um, the more I've gotten to know my temperament, gotten to know my amygdala, getting into the neuroscience, the trauma recovery, the deep introspection and intrapersonal intelligence fostered and cultivated has been really powerfully kind to myself and to those who may come to my shows and 
I feel like we're all, we all find each other eventually. And I know that it was, you know, the meek shall inherit the earth, but I actually think the, the introverts and the sensitives and us philosophers archetypally, um, you know, us being in positions of leadership is a boon for the consciousness of this funny planet. You know, I just think, I think to the best of my ability, I love supporting certainly my own self, but supporting those who are temperamentally maybe predisposed to not wanting to be in the public eye, not doing the keynote talks, not doing the TED talks, you know, supporting those people in launching their biggest vision while while supporting them and taking care of their body and their temperament. That's beautiful. I was going to say the same. I think when people listen to you, especially when they feel resonance with what you're saying, that it feels empowering to them. And it also sounds to me like you you are on a journey and that journey made you also stronger. So maybe you can speak a little bit to your own healing journey and what, like in retrospect, what, what do you feel are the cornerstones of your healing journey? Because if we listen to you, then we can learn and apply it maybe in our life in a bit of a different way, but there are certain principles and maybe you can speak a bit to those. Yeah, I feel blessed in that I have a, a pretty deep understanding of a lot of therapeutic models. So in some ways, I feel like whatever itch is happening, that there is a scratch available. You know, I'm a huge fan of, of Dick Schwartz and IFS work. I've been a parts person since as far back as I can remember, to the point where some of my friends are like, okay, with the multitudinousness, <laughs> we want the singularity. I'm like, okay, I'll give you my my overarching part will speak with you, but um, I have a lot of um, I have a lot of abundance in terms of of whether it's intellectual, sensual, somatic, um, you know, feelings. There's just intrapersonal inquiry has been my way of life always. So as often as I can be silent is a key piece, and then also knowing what my priorities are and values. So for me, it's there's the top three. First one is connection and it's triadic. So connection with spirit in whatever way that shows up for me, it's often shamanism or just silence. Um, and then interpersonal, so relational, marriage, dating, friendships, colleagueships, um, how, to, how to find the grace inside of the humanity of those interactions. Um, and then, you know, so it's 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 life and a macrocosmic service, it's interpersonal, and then intrapersonal is a big deal. I know how scary it can be to go within, especially if we're alone, and especially if that internal interiority has been terrifying. Um, my son was maybe six years old, he's 12 now. Um, and I remember at one point he was feeling a lot of feelings, and I said, I asked him, what's going on in there? You know, and he said, there's a lot going on in here, mommy. It's scary. You know, and I said, well, let's, I'll go in with you. We'll go in together. You know, he said, okay. You know, it's something about us supporting each other in this inquiry that, that, and, and that's what I also love about IFS too, is that you're going in, but with a, in my case, with the therapist, I think therapists, any moment I can get a chance to thank them because it's been a life-saving dynamic with me, but the idea of how, of cultivating this interiority. And for those of us who are introverted and, and empaths, it's a way of life for us, right? My interior world is so rapturous. <laughs> There's so many amazing internal dialogues and conversations to be had in here and insights. So my time alone is sacred. Um, and then a lot of times with highly sensitive people, one-on-one -on -one is powerful. So anytime I can create a one-on-one -on -one conversation or dialogue or a listening, it's my favorite. Mm. It's beautiful. Like you, you spoke to um, your part a little bit about your parenting. How, what do you feel 
becoming a parent, being a parent contributed to your development? I think I underestimated the receiving because my orientation to counter what I see as sort of a monologizing culture or narcissistic elements in my past uh, with upbringing and otherwise um, was almost going to the other end of the spectrum where I just thought it's got to be this huge generosity, almost like an obliteration of self and pros and cons to that obliteration. Um, However, what I'm realizing is it's still a repartee. It's still a back and forth. There's a receiving in terms of whatever juncture that they're at in their development. Um, I can do things like offer them things that I never received or leave space for feelings that were, you know, I was told weren't allowed. Things like anger and sadness and fear, specifically those three were a big, big no-no. And they kind of continue to be a no-no in definitely in American culture. Um, we're very, very mental and academic and sports, you know, in general here. Um, so those of us who are oriented toward the more mercurial feelings, sensuality, allowing flow, trusting flow, trusting life, you know, we're activists in a way in certain parts of the planet where that's not normalized. Mm. Right, right. It's beautiful. And where do you feel the difficulties or the struggle came in so where where did you feel that your own past kind of came in when you became a mom and because mm -hmm. i think that's always interesting where the next generation helps us to if we want to helps us to find, find our own stuff and i often say the parents are the piano and the children are the piano player you know and when they the hammer. yeah, yeah right. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, I mean, parenting has just opened up a greater empathy, um, an attunement, you know, so there's parts within that I have my capital S self has not been attuned to in here. So almost watching the way I am attuned to my children as a model for how I can also apply it in here, there has been an outward sort of orientation in my life, partly temperamentally, part survival strategy. Um, but my attunement with my children has informed um, the grace and the space and the opening that can happen with that version of attunement emotionally, intellectually, all of it. So I attempt to apply that with my own self, um, but also some insights, you know, there, with trauma and just with life in general and perimenopause, the memory isn't always there for me, um, but it's definitely implicit, explicit. It's in this body. So when I see my beautiful child be six months old, two years old, eight years old. You know, it's it's almost like an honoring of that stage of development. And, um, you know, there's no way around the humanity part, the exhaustion, the, the irritability, the, you know, the triggering, the I'm going to table this triggering with my child and process it later, you know, and there's just such a beautiful, messy humanity inside of parenting for me anyway. Um, as long as I have some time to process it, I'm fine. If I have to overly contain, which sometimes happens, I start um, I start wanting to eat my own hand. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. And you're also speaking, first of all, I love how openly you speak about it. I think it sounds to me very transparent and honest. And I think that's exactly, I think, what many parents need to hear that it's not a clean process it's a messy process sometimes and uh, but we need to sign up to process it at a certain time yeah. even if it's not possible and sometimes even that it's not possible also stretches our kind of ego boundaries 
and yes. we need to be bigger than what we are going through and that's actually good it, it matures us it's lovely and it builds that resiliency and that capacity to be able to table things and contain and these are all superpower abilities you know right yeah exactly Wonderful, but thank you for speaking to it because I think sometimes as parents we come into this perfectionism or I think how do I do it right and sometimes we simply don't get it right but we are willing to learn thing that's beautiful. Yeah, and I'm, I'm subject to the exact same thing. I have a tendency to just basically my biggest prayer that I often say is, you know, let me do right by my children. Let me not fail them, you know, in the fill in the blank area, academically, you know, emotionally, uh, linguistically, let me not fail them, you know, and I'm the last few days I've just been thinking, is there a positive way to frame that? Like, you know, thank you for allowing me to show up for them in the ways that I do. And when I can't and don't, um, you know, thanks for the grace of allowing for my humanity and all that, you know. But um, it looks different every moment. And so the subtle nuances of what each moment asks of us. And have we slept? Have we eaten well? How are the nutrients? How are the, how's the sunlight in the eyes? How is the, you know, the, for me, I'm hyper attuned to everything around me. So it's sometimes I have to close my eyes to not get overstimulated because I have another three hours left with one of my children. Or It's managing energy too. It's not just time management. It's managing energy. And, and for me, before children, I had the invincibility thought. The, you know, there was just, I would just white knuckle through everything. There was a counterphobia. And I think that speaks to how I could continue in a very extroverted environment as an introvert was that I built this sort of survival mechanism of counterphobia. You know, so if I was terrified that I would lean toward it. And that's an orientation. Some of it is a survival strategy, but some of it is also just a a personal orientation and I was the kind of person that someone would ask for a volunteer and before I heard the details of what was being asked I'd have my hand up right away and I'd think what am I doing mm -hmm. you know, so, so that helped you know but then it was hard on the body and I would do the the sort of predictable requisite thing to survive it you know I've played with all kinds of versions of attempting to regulate through alcohol through all kinds of medicatings um to attempt to try to fit into an, an extroverted patriarchal environment. And it would work, you know, as, as addictions do, they work for the first 12 minutes quite gloriously. And then you're on your, on the road to death and despair and decay. So, <laughs> so I looked at, you know, how can I regulate, how can I be responsible for, you know, a general sense of a regulation orientation life. Um, and that's been really helpful. Mm. Mm, beautiful, beautiful. So let's. So we we talked about more the personal dimension of it, and now since this was a collective trauma summit, and I think we are all living in a world that was already traumatized before we landed here, and now we are dealing yes. with mess all the time. And uh, and so like our summit's theme this year is how to create a global healing movement because collective trauma can't be healed by one person. It needs to be healed through us. And uh, I think we are, there are many ways. And I'm curious when you hear collective healing or creating a movement to heal collectively and also tend to the big topics that are coming up in our societies at the moment, democracies are threatened, climate change, refugees, colonialism, racism, you name it, gender violence. So, how can we navigate in this world? And maybe since 
your music um, is very strong. Like how how can art and music be a part of kind of a collective healing movement? If, we, if there's anything that comes up, uh, so please share. Yeah. One of them is that we live in cultures, especially in America, uh, that tell us we can't feel. And the indoctrination of that messaging stops uh, the natural flow and current and movement of, of that that is within us all. We're not, you know, you know this more than anybody. We're not just matter. You know, we're not just dense bodies, meat packets, although that's fun. Um, you know, so to, to realize that um, collectively that we are united, you know, and uh, interconnected um, and that um, the micro is the macro, you know, so what's happening in my living room is happening between nations, you know, and we're taught so many things. These aren't things that I think are innate to us. We're taught competition. I'm noticing it from a very young age, us against them, better than, worse than. There's these very basic messages that are sent to us from pre-verbal times and as part of our legacy, you know, as part of our, all the way back to our ancestors, these lies, basically these deep untruths. So for anyone to behave in a counter animal way like what i tell my children is the difference between animals and i live for animals the difference between animals and us is we have this frontal cortex that can have us say okay so on an animal level i want to punch you in the face or blow your head off because i'm filled with rage but my frontal cortex will say but that may not help in the big picture um you know, and, and allowing for the feeling. So it's not like we're just sort of, sort of spiritually bypassing and saying, well, I just want to zone, you know, zen out, allowing the anger to be what it is. And there's ways to move anger for me through art, through movement, through sports, through verbal linguistic venting, you know, the sacred act of a friend or a colleague or a therapist holding space for someone to move that energy so that it doesn't have have to act out over here anything we sublimate beach ball under the water will pop out and and i think anger gets such a bad reputation because what we what we related to is the destructing act the destructive acting out of anger versus the gorgeous anger itself you know anger can help activism anger can help heal collective trauma if we allow it to fuel us but when we think of anger, we think of the destructive acting out of anger. And so it gets this bad rep, but at the same time, it's sublimating it even more and perpetuating the cycle of the acting out of anger. And that there's this big scarcity mindset that there's only one throne. However many seven point some billion odd people on this planet, that's how many thrones there are. You know, so, so flipping the scarcity mindset, realizing that you know, you can be across from someone versus above them or below them to to counter the indoctrination, the indoctrinating messages that we get day in and day out from ads to TikTok. everywhere you look, these messagings are there, you know, so to be discerning and to listen to them with a discerning mind and an open heart and an open mind. That's why I think the philosopher archetype will will be a big part of this collective trauma healing, because for those of us to think about something and slowing down to move fast, you know, slowing things down and really looking at them and taking the time to see whether it's actually true, 
you know, so for me, when you say collective healing or the like healing collective trauma together, the, the giant we is the truth, you know? And so there's this big impetus on autonomy and let's teach our children to be independent. And I'm like, okay, but ultimately the grace and the ultimate teaching in my mind would be how do we teach each other as children or otherwise in these educational environments, interdependence, you know, because if we are a we, which we are, how do we teach grace? How do we teach tolerance of someone else's perspective that maybe clashes with yours? How do we, how do we do conflict resolution that allows us to continue to define ourselves uniquely? How can we have these individuated stories while, while keeping in mind at the fore that we're still one? You know, so it's that beautiful balance of realizing that we are individual, unique, localized, you know, interpretations of reality, our worldviews are multitudinous and singular and and individuated, but ultimately connected. So the highest truth is our connection. And then the individuated, egoic, day-to-day -day mundane stuff is almost like the playground. But whenever I forget that connection or that sense of oneness, that is hell. My son asked me the other day if I believe in heaven and hell. And I said, yes, hell is on earth when we feel disconnected. We're actually not disconnected. But when the felt sense in the body of disconnection happens, that is pure living day-to-day -day hell. Oh, so I probably said so many things and amazing things right now <laughs> like in one go. Um, maybe you can like uh, just uh, wind back for a moment to interdependence because I think that's such an important and essential principle. Can you speak a little bit what how how can we imagine interdependence? What does that mean? What is interdependence when we are in life? How how does this work? Yeah. Okay. So um, the general messaging is is this in individual, you know, individual or bust. And on some level, that's gorgeous. You know, I know that that person loves yellow and that person loves green and this person lives for orange and, and that part's interesting, you know. So to have some sort of neutrality and, and, and perceiving other people as different snowflakes falling out of the same cloud, you know, or the, the beautiful metaphors of the raindrop from the ocean, you know, don't forget the ocean and enjoy the raindrop, you know, <laughs> enjoy, enjoy your dropfulness, but never forget that you're part of the ocean, you know, but a lot of people feel because of the scarcity that my way is the way. And then we get locked into that. And then there's this, um, but your question was about interdependence. Um, yeah, to be taught that leaning on each other. I mean, we're a relational creatures. We die without each other. We literally die as a baby. You know this, you know, babies die if they don't have that interaction. So we're built to need each other. We're built to lean on each other. And, and when we have this sort of ennui or, um, you know, avoidant style of, of interaction, that's not actually you know, a lot of people sort of value when someone can let things roll off their back. And, um, and if it's temperamentally, they're, they're predisposed to that. That's lovely. But for the most part, we're taught that it's safest to be needless, wantless. I won't get hurt. I'm not going to rely on you. We're taught a lot. And there's this big autonomous movement that's been happening for a lot of years. And I see us, you, Dan Siegel, me, hundreds of us, thousands of us are, are moving toward the, the, the awareness of how do we practically apply the we, that mm. there is an individual inside here. And we can be traumatized. A lot of people are like, you have to love yourself first before you can be in a relationship. 
I don't entirely agree with that. I think tons of us traumatized people can absolutely function in a relationship and there's just more challenges within them and more work to do, quote unquote. So, um, so you know, even in the education of, of this obsession with teaching kids how to be independent, um, my orientation is teaching us how to be graceful in our interdependence, you know, and sometimes I'll come home and I have a lot that I want to process and my husband doesn't have it in him in that moment. So in that moment, I'll choose to be independent or I'll go elsewhere or I'll journal or I'll wait, you know, to process uh, in the we, you know, so in some ways, you know, there was a movement of individual work is everything. And then the couples therapeutic world was, it's all about couples, you know, and for me, it's just both like uh, doing the internal work on my own with all my parts, plenty of, plenty of activity, mm -hmm. you know, and then bringing that to other, you know, and ultimately, you know, us asking each, a lot of people interpret the word independence as, you know, fostering a neediness as though that's a bad thing. Um, I think what they might be specifically alluding to is the idea that we don't want to ultimately bring our parts to someone and go here, this is your problem now. You know, so in that sense, we want to have some kind of agency and ownership over, I'd like you to help me with this part that was sexually abused, or I'd like you to help me if you're up for it with this part that has, can't make a decision about something. So there's the interdependence and the vulnerability. Um, but if that person doesn't have the bandwidth or they're just not in the mood or whatever it is, then, then you can go to the independence of, it's still relational though, because inside here, there's so many relationships. So, so in, uh, to speak to what I touched on earlier, my three priorities are the, um, connection first. So the three triadic connections, second is the self-expression. And then the third is uh, somatic. So being in the body while we're here, because we might as well, <laughs> you know, I'm excited about the whole biohacking world and longevity conversations. And it's all quite exciting to me, the idea of staying around as long as we can, because for a long time, I didn't want to be around, you know, and I, I've struggled with depression and had postpartum depression three times with my children and uh, uh, children. So, so the idea of really wanting to be here has me super lit up now. <laughs> I'm uh, like, yeah, I want to be. This is great. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's beautiful. And um, so, so first of all, it's so lovely to listen to you. It's so eloquent and flowing, and there's so many deep aspects inside that we could all dive into that I resonate very much with, obviously. But uh, just coming back to, to that interdependence, when you play your music and when you are in front of or with many people, like how, how do these moments contribute or might be part of some like collective healing space? Because I think something like the coherence that's being developed through music and, and the deep relationships and relationality that's happening there is, I think, extraordinary. And so it's actually an amazing chance. And I would love to hear how you see those moments and healing and maybe collective healing uh, partnering or being uh, happening in that moment. Yes. Um, well, it is a dialogue energetically. So there is so much love in the room. It's there's in, there's an invitation, as I mentioned earlier. There's a permission, although they don't. No one needs permission from me. But there is a sort of collective permission for our humanity. In my personal case, when I'm singing about all these colors of what it is to be human, 
um, and touching on them all um, equally, really. Um, it sends the message in the room or the venue or the amphitheater that um, our humanity is welcome here and I'm going to physicalize it, I'm going to move it, I'm going to resonate musically, that beautiful universal language of art and music. I mean, I weep, you know, it's like, mm. it's the greatest. So it is a dialogue um, because I had no interest really in kind of going around the planet, monologizing to people. That's not really that inspiring to me. Um, I'm more of a dialoguer. So in some ways I really rely on the energy in the room. Um, and I watch people, you know, I'll, I'll watch the mirror neurons happening, the celebration, the, the sense of freedom in that moment. If I can do it, if I can move like this, if I can sweat, if I can emote, if I can physicalize or exaggerate or contain, and then, you know, all of these sort of artistic moments of expression through physical, through visual, through all the senses, um, it's basically giving a green light and an invitation for all of us to do it. And I'm aware of that. And that's why I keep doing it. Mm. Yeah, that's amazing. I also think that the coherence that gets built uh, is very powerful. I think there's mm. something to this moment when we're all so connected or we feel how connected we actually are because I mean, we are always connected, as you said before. We just sometimes feel very separate, but that, that's yeah. happening all the time. I think there's something very powerful as an example of how the world actually is also, even if we don't see it all the time. And those moments actually... I think the coherence has a very strong healing power uh, also for people and, and just being in that experience and taking that home and remembering it, I think is a powerful, is a powerful moment. Yes. Coherence, resonance and how that feels in the body and that, that, you know, if it feels how it does in the body, even just talking about it with you, I feel it, you know, just, I love what you just said, like bringing that home and having it as a reference, you know, not in a way to beat oneself up if we're not feeling it, but knowing that it's possible. And I love that critical mass is such a small number, you know, mm -hmm. in terms of healing collective trauma. Critical mm -hmm. mass is tiny. I think it's 1.5% of us or something. And that small part of the bell-shaped curve, those of us who shall inherit the earth, you know, I think uh, enough of us understand coherence, understand resonance, understand what's possible in human bodies here. And, you know, to the degree that I can just say, yay, support, champion, facilitate, you know, all of us doing that and continuing to do it. And certainly my continuing to do it. I mean, that's what I feel I was born to do. So it's mm. the greatest. Yeah, that's amazing. That's also a very powerful sentence that you can say, I feel that I was born to do that. That's a powerful sentence. There's also a strong commitment to be here, to say, yes. I really, I'm here for that. That, that has a, a strong grounded message. And, and yes. it gives us also, you transmit us to me now when I talk to you, I feel it. And also I'm sure everybody who's listening to us, that there is a, that there is a powerful commitment to life in finding out what I'm here for. Yes. And, Maybe you can speak a little bit to that because sometimes also spirituality is being practiced as a way out of a suffering world instead of yeah. into a suffering world. <laughs> and the power that it unleashes to really want to be committed to our world in the beauty and celebration, as you spoke about, but also in the in the pain. And this is a painful yeah. place. And how can we practice our spiritual practice that gets us here to that commitment? And I want to serve this world. 
I want to give to this world. And so when you said it, I, it reminded me of a very strong commitment, uh, like it resonated for me as a commitment to be here. Whatever comes up in you when I say that. I did a lot of things, like it's like 17 rebels. Um, <clears throat> the commitment to be here and the, the sense of purpose, it's actually, it can be challenging for some of us when someone says, well, once you know your purpose, it'll get a lot easier. Okay. Um, when, when we've been taught and, and, and basically brainwashed into thinking, uh, there is one thing for you to do. You're, you come from a long line of doctors. So young woman, you're going to be a doctor or you're going to follow in the family footsteps on one level. If that's inspiring for someone, great, you know, but so many of us sort of get locked into the day-to-day -day mundane of I chose this career, I'm going to stay in it for 37, 49 years, you know? And so what's happening now, and, and even in the nineties, I could really feel this stay in your lane, stay singular, you know? And on some level focus does yield. I live for that. It's true. However, for those of us who are multitudinous, good luck being one thing, you know? And Thank so you. what's wonderful, about 2023 is that there's more room for multitudinousness now, which is, um, so for me too, when someone's looking for this felt sense of purpose, it is so nuanced for, because for me, it's neurochemical, it's biochemical, it's hormones, it's food, it's sleep, it's, is there community? We live in this podful world now where village is not normalized. Although I really feel amongst all my friends in my micro world that there's this yearning for villagefulness again. And, and do we have to be sort of cultural rebels in order to achieve that kind of birthright of having a sense of village? You know, I was in Fiji walking down the street and these two precious seven-year-old boys had their arms around each other walking down the street. And I I was chatting with them and I said, well, where are your grandparents? You know, and they just, their answer was this, you know, and I just thought, ah, oh, that's amazing. <laughs> you know, they just trust that there are aunts and uncles and grandparents and elders and friends and siblings, and they're just everywhere, you know, and, and there is, it's almost like you're in a, a seat in that place where you can make choices because there's a generalized regulatory approach. You know, we lean on each other. And if mom's beleaguered and exhausted, then you got your aunt, you know, and, but nowadays we live in these pods. So there is a general suffering and ache just as an undercurrent to the fact that how we're living and how our day-to-day -day sort of worlds unfold is counter to what our bodies and our souls ultimately need, you know? So how to continue to cultivate community is a big deal. And it sounds like that's at the epicenter of, of, of many of your missions. Um, but I don't know if that's spoke to what you just asked. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's let's leave it here. And so um, the, but when we when we talk about this culture, like there is something grounding in in finding our mission, even if it's multiple things that inspire our mission. There's something about committing to life and be of service in this world instead of trying to get out of this world. You can transcend it, but still be very committed to life. And um, I'm curious in your own journey to look at if, like how important was the dimension of your body, your embodiment, you spoke a bit about it already, but I want to hear a little bit more from how you experienced the importance of healing your own trauma through your body. 
because I think there is an importance. I'm curious your experience. And then when we go deeper through our body and we look at the duality that we find, you know, even in the whole climate change conversation, the human and the planet are often two. And I'm wondering about this duality where nature is not around us, it's through us. I'm also nature. Yes. So, yes. so how is embodiment, nature, and this kind of um, split that we often experience, often hear about, or that this kind of mainstream culture is the people on the planet versus we are the planet? And I think that's for our time an important, I don't know, restoration process to change and to see the duality and change it. I'm curious, your healing body, nature, whatever you feel. Yeah, I mean. It's funny how so many of us need science to corroborate what so many of us also already know, right? <laughs> like, you know that we're all sort of biochemically amoeba-ish, made up of the same thing in all galaxies, every plant, every root, every bug, that we're all made of the same stuff. And that, you know, we're densified into these seemingly individualized, separate so on a spiritual level, and, and again, I'm going to talk about the West, which is sort of infiltrated all pieces of the planet. You know, we have this messaging that we're separate and it is the pain. You know, when Buddhism talks about life is suffering, it talks about the individual individuated dualistic life. And to some degree, it's fun. You know, when I'm doing a sauna or a cold plunge, I'm like, there's hot, there's cold, there's the dualism, you know. So it's like a playground of color but it's still a playground. It's still an illusion. It's still not actually the truth of the, of the science or the spirit that we are. And unfortunately, we live in a culture right now, not in all places on the planet, but where, you know, generally in North America, there's this bereftness of a sense of spirit. Even some of the disparaging words that are used, like woo-woo, or mm. it breaks my heart because I just think, but this is who we are. This is the platform. This is the oneness, right? And the individuation or the separation or the dualism is here for fun and, and felt sense experience, but it's still an illusion, you know? So, and that may not make sense to some people and it didn't make sense to me for a long time. But the body, when I first started doing somatic work and, and really healing my dissociation and coming back into this body very slowly. And I used to think, why is this work so slow? You know, why are we going so slow? Uh, because, you know, the, the staying quick and rushed and hurried beautiful book called The Hurried Child, um, keeps us out of our bodies. It keeps us in the pervasive messaging of work addiction is the only way, you know? So, so coming back into the body for me has been a very slow, protracted, beautiful experience because it allows me to be hyper-present. At first I thought, why would I want to describe this knot in my chest or the red hot heat in my jaw? Why do why would anyone care? Why would I want to exaggerate a movement, you know? And the more of this internal somatic embodying work that I've done, it brings me to the realization of what you just said, which is that when I am in here, I feel connected to all, you know? And that doesn't mean I don't, I'm not a murderess and it doesn't mean I don't squish the bug. It's that I know that I just squished myself. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it, it's, um, there is the felt sense of connection with nature. And I've always noticed that as people get older and their consciousness shifts and things open up, that their relationship with nature becomes more to the center, you know, and mm -hmm. um, 
there's a reason for that. There is a flow and an unfoldment of life that is gorgeously neutral in nature. You know, when a plant dies, there's not, you know, the, I, I don't think, I mean, sometimes the trees grieve, I'm sure, but there's, it's almost like, um, it, it flow is evidenced so beautifully in nature and that we're invited to do the same thing, but this fear thing happens, right? This fear of death, ultimately, fear of the cycle, fear, fear of the body ending. Um, but the dualism, we take it so seriously. We take individuation so seriously and the us against them is will be our downfall because it's also us against earth us against that political party us against that gender us against the age group that skin color that way of life that way they dress you know it's just like these are all personal self-expressions and that's why self-expression is so important to me whether it's through art photography conversation um going within you know all the the etheric body the causal body all this energetic energetic awareness the more self-knowledge, the more knowledge that I've accrued, the simpler things have gotten for me. Yeah, more to say, but for now. <laughs> yeah, that's also very powerful, just what you said at the end. I mean, there's many powerful things. But it touches me, what you said is, because first of all, it resonates very strongly with my own experience. The more we know, and or it's not only intellectual knowing, the more we dive deeper into ourselves, actually, the world becomes more simple. Yeah. Because we are able to host more of the complexity and then it becomes simplicity. It it's something more overwhelming. More world can land in us. So it's it's less threatening. It's less overwhelming. It's more... Less triggering, right? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, less triggering, more flow. You know, there's a quality of listening that we can offer, right? Like you're offering it to me right now. Like there's a space, there's a spaciousness that we can offer each other when we've met those places in us. You know, right. so right. as an example, your fear or your rage or your passion or your excitement, it's just a yes, because I understand, I've felt it myself, my own personalized version of it. But, you know, wherever I look, I notice where I have resistance, you know, and that's an indication that's a portal for me, an inquiry portal of, oh, I notice I was resistant to that. So there's something in here for me to soften it and neutralize it, you know. Mm. That's another very powerful thing you said now, because that's that's a lovely indic indicator for, okay, when people say, okay, but what should I look at or where should I work on myself? It's exactly these moments. But what you said just now, when I feel resistance that I don't judge it, but I'm going to look at it because yes. otherwise I repeat it. And yes. that's that's really beautiful. And also what, what you said about, okay, then then more of the world can flow through us. I think then we can hold more space and we become naturally ecosystemic. Yes. You know, when you the more you grow, you naturally, you don't have to become ecosystemic. You're naturally becoming it through your maturation. And that's that's what you naturally become. So there's no effort. It's not a career. It's a consequence of a deep path. Yes, and, and I and, a, a and growing awareness of of that inextricable link. You know? Exactly the growing awareness, right? And so it's beautiful because I think for uh, when we when I listen to you because you're so openly sharing about your own path, it's 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 a true invitation for everybody to, of course, with a different life story. But some of the principles you shared with us are very deep, and they're they're universally true. And then they become specific, but they are universally true. And I think when we listen to your path, and and it also means that your development allows you to speak freely about your own yes. journey. 
you know, yes, less, miss- less shame about the humanity, you know, and yeah. I have a lot of, don't get me wrong. Um, but the less shame I have, the more I can soften that, the more room there is for someone to process something, you know, there are times where people say things that I notice inner resistance, but for the most part, when I'm listening, I'm just relating, you know, and, mm. and ultimately, ultimately holding space when I can. Um, sometimes with my husband, I'm <laughs> not able to do that, but that's <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And I also feel, I mean, I, I want to round up our conversation given the time it's that I don't take too much of your time, but the, the, one thing is also that I believe the integration that you went through, especially also standing a lot in the in the public space, I think is also enhancing a transmission and a congruency that you transmit together with your music into the audience. Like the more fragmented we are, we transmit fragmentation, but the more integrated we are, we also transmit more integration. So it's lovely for me to hear that that uh, as as an artist in the public space, you also you know you're putting the energy into your own work because I believe it reaches invisibly also many people. It's ecosystemically working just because yes. you do what you do. Um, yeah, and and that resilience is possible. You know, when I first started doing this work of coming back into the body and really living you know, the felt sense of non-dualism and, you know, what does that even mean and how do I access it? And all these really fun questions, the more I've been living it, the more, um, you know, the more, just the more space there is. And I think when there is space, when there is love and neutrality, I mean, that's the truth. You know, the truth for me is found in that stillness and in that sense of connection. And as a child, I used to equate that the intensity of intimacy. You know, I always think the soul is shy, but that intensity is just intensity. Doesn't mean something bad is going to happen. Doesn't mean that this eye contact is going to turn into a predatorial thing. It doesn't mean that something wrong is happening. It just means that it's intense. It's intense intimacy. It's intense to connect. It's a felt sense of sparkliness and intensity and that that can just be what it is you know because the invitation can feel terrifying you know fear of death fear of obliteration annihilation fear of being hurt fear of pain felt sense of pain it's like all these make perfect sense to the human being and then these little risks are are what i'm encouraging my own self to do that the risks don't Mm. have to be these quantum they can be tiny little Mm. risks every day and it just opens up the space you spoke of, of being able to look at someone and hold space for the wholeness of who they are. It doesn't mean we don't have boundaries with certain behaviors. I think that's really important. Um, but it does mean that there's at least space left for all of our humanities. Mm. It, you said something beautiful, like, let's do the step that we can do and not the one that we want to do, but we will never do. You know, like, right. let's do the next yeah. step that is a bit risky. And you also said, but we have to risk something. Yes, it's also powerful. Yeah, the little risks are huge. Yeah, yeah the little risks are huge. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> otherwise we stay we stay our used self, like the used the self that we are used to. But if we risk things, so we constantly open up and we invite change into our life. And then, and I mean, circling all the way back to, you know, this sense of purpose. It's like every little risk informs and can really concretize in the best way 
that sense of purpose. And now the forms mm-hmm. that they take, who knows, we'll see. But but the purpose of of showing up and offering something. And it could be simple. It doesn't have to be, I'm here to save the planet. You know, whenever there's this sort of messianic mission, I just I just go, oh, I don't know. How about make let's make it smaller? Let's make it more real. Like maybe I'm coming into this room to offer listening. Let's keep it simple. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be I'm coming into this world to change and uplift. You know, that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. But also keeping it really minutiae and and intimate. Like, are we coming in this room to offer what? Just pick anything. Offer humor. Offer a smile. You know, make it really simple. And then and then it it feels more doable rather than some huge overarching messianic mission, which is almost impossible as as we right. know. And and I think you as a musician know this best. Like that music, it's not being done by one; it's being done by an orchestra. And when we all learn to be part of an orchestra, to play together, that's what we, I mean, your life, my life, many people's lives together create the change. And that's why we also think, we also look a lot at the collective movement. And maybe just the last question, if there's anything that we didn't speak about that you think is important or is maybe at the leading edge of your own development at the moment or you're passionate about and to give it to our listeners. So please. Yeah, I mean, six trillion things. And I have so many questions for you. So maybe I could have the honor of of switching tables at some point. But um, yeah, for me, I'm such a feeling person, right? I just feel I I feel very deeply. And I used to have great shame about that. And Lord knows was dumped many times for it. Um, and people would move away from it because we just get the general message that feeling is scary, you know. But even with my children, if my daughter's crying, letting her cry all the way through. You know, and if we cut it off at 20% or often the case 2% for convenience sake, or I'm embarrassed, it's we're in a public place, stop crying. But if we let the hundred percent of the cry move through the body, there is this grace at the end. You know, it's almost like a full cleanse. So whether it's anger or sadness or terror, even terror is, uh, is I've been working a lot with my own terror because I've had anxiety and depression stuff my whole life so so looking at terror and and actually feeling it versus I'm gonna I gotta pop a pill which you know of course makes sense that one would want to regulate in the face of a panic attack or otherwise but but allowing the feelings is certainly lovely to do with other you know but even when we're alone to be able to mark it and notice the movement of of what terror feels like when it's completed for lack of a better term or the sadness or the joy you know or, or the anger like really letting it move through is is really what i'm looking at with my children and with my own self and there's context like maybe don't do it on the airplane when <laughs> maybe don't rage out on the airplane but maybe do it when you land somewhere in a bathroom stall or something um but moving the energy all the way through to its completion and then noticing what's there is is one of six trillion things we could end That's <laughs> amazing it really touches me also the beauty of how you speak as a parent like that your own limitation to not be able to contain the emotions of your child like how you expand that more and more so that you don't pass on the same limitation to the next generation it's beautiful like to be able to to be part of the whole arc of an emotional yeah. expression that's very beautiful so thank you for that that touches me 
it's beautiful. Yeah, fantastic. I could go on for hours. It's so I have so much in resonance with you, and I love your expression, and it's so full of energy and and eloquence and beauty and depth. So thank you so much for this. I feel very energized now, and I feel oh, yeah, and it's a lovely time. So mm, thank you so much. Thank you, and thank you for being part of this here. It was a great joy. It's a great joy. Thank you. Visit CollectorTraumaSummit.com to listen to more talks like this one and to sign up and be the first to know when the next Collector Trauma Summit is announced. Thanks for listening to Point of Relation with Thomas Hoover. Stay connected by visiting our website, pointofrelationpodcast.com and by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a positive rating and review and share about us with your community on social media. Thank you. We appreciate your support.